Good theology must exist, if for no other reason, because bad theology needs to be answered. This is Pints with Jack, Season 5, Episode 68, Deeper Magic, After Hours with Dr. Donald Williams. Hello, and welcome to Pints with Jack, your weekly C.S. Lewis podcast where David, Matt, and I break down and discuss the works of C.S. Lewis. Today's quotation is actually a co-opting of a line found in Learning in Wartime, where Lewis actually talked about good philosophy. But we're mentioning theology today because it's our pleasure to welcome to the show Dr. Donald T. Williams the author of Deeper Magic, The Theology Behind the Writings of C.S. Lewis. Dr. Williams is the Professor Emeritus at Toccoa Falls College, where he was R.A. Forest Scholar for many years in the hills of northeast Georgia. As a dual citizen of Narnia and Middle-earth, Dr. Williams is a border dweller, permanently camped out on the borders between serious scholarship and pastoral ministry, theology and literature, preaching and teaching, Christianity and culture. Best known as an inkling scholar and Christian apologist, Dr. Williams is the author of 13 books, including Deeper Magic. Dr. Williams, welcome to Pints with Jack. Ellen C. Ladumen Omentiovo, a star shines on the hour of our meeting. Ah, amen. Good to be here. We're grateful to have you join us, and I'm particularly grateful to uh, renew our acquaintance. We first met in, oh my goodness, 2016, I think it was, at the uh, 47th MythCon. It might have been there, yes. In fact, I remember where you were sitting when I gave my keynote address, mm. and, uh, and your spy- smile that day was a great encouragement. Good. So you have just retired from Toccoa Falls? A couple of years ago, yeah. Okay. And what do you do with your time now? Well, I'm uh, staying busy. I just got back from a couple of weeks teaching at the International uh, Academy of Apologetics, Evangelism, and Human Rights in Strasbourg, France. Before that, I was uh, in India for a week uh, teaching apologetics to a group of local pastors out there and just had an article come out in Touchstone, uh, the current issue. You know, you think you're going to have all this time when you retire, but, uh, you know, the (laughs) time accelerates as you go through life and retirement Mm -hmm. is, is like just jamming your foot down on the accelerator pedal. And so, uh, it just uh, it just keeps going. Oh, well, and I get to do fun things like talking with you. Well, we're grateful that you would make some time. And yeah, I remember I need to track down the source of this quote because I paraphrase it badly all the time. Um, Jack says that time, we can tell that we're eternal because time fits us badly like a bad mm-hmm. suit of clothes. It seems to mm-hmm. rush or creep. And uh, that's a testament to, I think, our eternal nature. Well, as uh, as always, when we start this episode, we have a bit of a toast. And uh, what are you drinking today? Well, some people cry for coffee as loud as loud can be. Before the truly civilized, a cup of Earl Grey tea. Some could have their Perrier, some could have had V8. But those whose taste is most refined all think Earl Grey is great. 
The captain of the Enterprise, he sails a starry sea. He asks the replicator for a cup of Earl Grey tea. The captain of the Enterprise, when first he rises up, he wants the status of the ship and Earl Grey in his cup. The captain of the Enterprise will always end his day with a page or two of Shakespeare and a cup of hot Earl Grey. The captain of the Enterprise, he drinks it by the pot. And to the replicator, he says, tea, Earl Grey, hot. While too much saurian brandy or too much Romulan ale can give you problems, you can drink your Earl Grey by the pail. Yes, some folks cry for coffee as loud as loud can be before the truly civilized a cup of Earl Grey tea. You <laughs> thought that was a simple question. Oh, my goodness. I have. <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. Um, I only have a scrap of a poem that I didn't write. I know that you wrote that one. Um, mm -hmm. But uh, I am toasting, um, as I did, as I will with the next episode with Ellen Snyder, I'm toasting with a dram of Jura scotch that was a gift from Malcolm Geit when he visited uh, us in Virginia a couple of months ago. And mm. um, the only bit of doggerel I have is the, the line, of course, that says that malt does more than Milton can to justify, to justify God's, ways, God's to ways to man. Yes. <laughs> yes. So now I'm going to toast uh, one of our Patreon supporters, Bud. Um, sent us, uh, each of us, uh, a gift card at Christmas to buy a scotch we wouldn't normally buy. So I came home with a lovely bottle of Cull Ela from Oxford mm. when I returned a couple weeks ago. So to Bud and to our uh, to the blessing of our meeting again. Cheers. Cheers. Well, we would love to get to know you better and wonder if you might be willing to spend a couple minutes just filling in some of the details of your background. Okay. Um, I uh, was born at a very early age. Um, <laughs> when I was five, I ran away with the circus, but they made me bring it back. No, that, that, that actually didn't happen. Uh, yeah, I uh, was born in Virginia. My parents moved to the Atlanta area when I was one. So I grew up in Georgia, and I've pretty much been here ever since, except for a few excursions out to exotic places like uh, Taylor University in Indiana or Trinity Evangelical Divinity School in Deerfield, Illinois. Came back uh, after all of that to get my doctorate at the University of Georgia, go dogs, uh, national champions, <laughs> 2021. But, you know, the, the interesting thing is that when I was in high school, I went through a period of, of significant doubts about my Christian faith. I was saved, walked the aisle of a little country Baptist church when I was five years old. And by the time I was in high school, like the 10th grade, I was starting asking, starting to ask questions like, how do we know this is true? It wasn't so much the lack of answers as it was the attitude toward the questions that was making this a much worse crisis than it needed to be. Because it was just, it was like, well, if you were spiritual, you wouldn't be asking that. You just need to read your Bible more and pray harder. And it was like, <laughs> I, I'm like, if, if the questions of a snot-nosed teenager are making you this insecure, how can the thing you're supporting possibly be true? So I never actually gave up the faith. The Lord had his hooks into me, but I was really struggling with it. And then the key turnaround came 
the summer between my uh, junior and senior year of high school, that's the summer of 68, uh, which is when I discovered the Lord of the Rings and just mm. got sucked into that thing incredibly. Uh, that's a whole different story. But at some point, somebody said, hey, if you like Tolkien, you ought to check out his friend, C.S. Lewis. So I went mm. to the library, and uh, most of the Lewis books were actually checked out. The first one I could find that was on the shelf was an experiment in criticism. Wow. <laughs> I'm an upcoming high school senior starting C.S. Lewis <laughs> with an experiment in criticism. I, as far as I know, I'm the <laughs> How only person, you get? I'm the only person in the world for whom that was their first Lewis book. You know, everybody, it's always mm -hmm. Narnia, mere Christianity. No, experiment in criticism. I got all the way through it uh, because even though it was dealing with literary criticism on a pretty sophisticated level, it was, as Lewis does, written so that normal human beings could understand it. And I was getting insights into, uh, oh, this is the way literature works. This is why I'm responding so powerfully to Tolkien, etc. So I, I found it fascinating. And then I went on to Mere Christianity, Miracles, Problem of Pain, the Space Trilogy, the Narnia books, and eventually everything. But uh, the, the great thing was that by the time I got to Mere Christianity, which I think was number two, uh, just to realize that a Christian mind was possible. Christian mind was not an oxymoron. One actually existed, which meant maybe I could have one. Maybe... Um, the attitude to truth and the attitude toward the truth of Christianity and, and how we come to believe in that, that Lewis represented was actually healthier and more faithful to scripture than what I had, had uh, grown up with. And so uh, I attribute to Lewis not my salvation, as a lot of people do, but my preservation in the faith. My subsequent career of camping out on the border between Narnia and Middle Earth and all those other places uh, really goes back to that experience. And you can blame Jack for pretty much all of it. Hmm. You know, it's a it's a similar story for me. I was raised mm -hmm. in no faith and um, came to Christianity. Um, Christ came to me my freshman year, but it was in my mm -hmm. early 20s when I was going through a crisis of faith that. Uh, that Lewis came and um, it was uh, initially Letters to an American Lady. Phil Keggy okay. had lent me a copy of that. So you, you had an unorthodox starting, starting point as well. It's a <laughs> it was. And then I don't know when or where, but it was, I started reading whatever I could and experimenting criticism came my way. And that was, uh, that was incredible and very helpful. So, mm -hmm. by the way, uh, Jim Como's first Lewis was also experimenting criticism. Interesting. Okay. So I got to stop claiming to be the only one then. Oh, shoot. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think there's many of us. No, there, there certainly met, weren't many. And, um, and one of the, one of the key uh, experiment was also a really key, crucial early book for David Lyle Jeffrey. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. That was some of the fun of putting together Mere Christians was uh, just finding the entrees. But um, I don't know if you've come across uh, Steve Beebe's marvelous book, C.S. Lewis and the Craft of Communications. 
Um, I haven't read that. But yet. Steve's a, a communications oh, great one to have on your shelf. Mm -hmm. Steve, an expert in communications, and he talks about Lewis's transpositional communication style, mm -hmm. how he can take these great concepts and pull them down to us. So did you finish reading that book as a as a as a teenager? Yeah. Yeah, I read it cover to cover. Oh, that's fantastic. And uh I can any actual sense I ever taught as a professor of English literature, I would attribute to that book as getting me started on the right foot in a lot of the things mm. that the study of English has committed intellectual and academic suicide over the last couple of decades. Yeah. Everything that you focus on now is nothing that anybody who actually loves literature cares about. Right. And nothing that they care about is talked about in college at all anymore. It wasn't true when I was an English major at Taylor University back in the 70s. It uh, wasn't yet true when I was doing my PhD in medieval Renaissance literature at the University of Georgia in the late 70s, early 80s. Yeah, for me, Lewis in Experiment and Criticism was the herb molly to protect me from the mm. evil influence of all those things. And remind listeners what that, uh, what that marvelous reference comes from. Oh, yeah, that's from the Odyssey. They go to an island where uh, there's the lotus uh, plant that it's some kind of a hallucinogen that, that's just making his people go crazy, totally uh, out of it. And he was protected against yeah. it by that herb. Yeah. So it's a it's if you can if you can find any uh, keep it with you it'll it'll preserve your sanity. <laughs> Were you like Jerry Root and uh, to a much smaller degree myself that um that Lewis becomes kind of a liberal education in tracking down what Lewis says in so many of his spots. Um, uh, you find that you have to read deeply and widely just about all of Western literature and some things beyond. Yeah, he, he has that effect. And in a book like um, The Discarded Image, uh, mm -hmm. he is directly and literally giving you the opening all the doors yep. to liberal learning. Well, and my undergrad work in English literature was in the late 90s and my grad work in the early 2000s. And by then, you know, we were almost post-humanist and I got, mm. uh, I got to that discipline far too late. Mm. Um, I was so gauche and out of, out of vogue because I was interested in a story. Um, <laughs> what? And I think that, I, yeah, exactly. Um and that's been part of my work on Till We Have Faces is just, as you witnessed um, at MythCon, just arguing that, that Lewis belongs in modernism and he was trying to nudge the needle. Um, and I think that if uh, English literature had really paid attention to discarded image, experimenting criticism, de descriptione temporum, mm -hmm. um, I think that it would, uh, it would be a great remedy. But, um, in my senior seminar on Milton... I required the students to read Preface to Paradise Lost, not only because it would uh, introduce them to Milton better than anything else, but because it shows you how literary scholarship is supposed to be done. Mm -hmm. This is how it's supposed to happen. Lewis goes back and he goes all the way back to Homer and roots all this stuff in the history of the epic. He's, 
in, instead mm-hmm. of just generating theories about it, he's actually connecting it to the things in history that help you understand it and that make it make sense. And uh, he's doing it without jargon. And so I, I took advantage of the excuse of teaching Milton to also make the point this forget all that stuff they want you to do when you get to grad school. I mean, you may have to do some of it to get your degree, but this is what we need. We need people to put themselves. We need you. I need you to put yourself in a position. Now you can't match Lewis, but put yourself in a position where you can do this kind of thing for people who love literature and want to get more out of it. Well, and no question, and especially his call and experiment and criticism to mm-hmm. see through other eyes. Oh, um, yeah. I was appalled during my graduate studies of how much commentary and criticism I was required to read. I mean, I read three times more criticism on Wordsworth than I actually read Wordsworth, mm-hmm. right? We never read the preface because we were busy reading comments about Wordsworth. And I think that that's just... um. That's just upside down thinking. Well, um, if you don't already know, um, you may be glad to to discover that uh, both uh, Preface to Paradise Lost and The O Hell for the first time have been released as not only um, iBooks, um, uh, so they're on Kindle and Apple Books, um, but they're also on audiobooks. And uh, Jerry Root is fond of recommending The O Hell, which is marvelous, marvelous reading. And you don't have to you know, read much in the 1500s. Uh, to really enjoy that. And it's the only, this this whole canon of books on literature that we've been referencing, every last one of them is still being read today. And there's not a single Mm -hmm. word of any of Lewis's contemporaries who at the time had bigger reputations than he did, of whom that is true. Uh, Nobody reads F.R. Levis. No, absolutely. Or any of those other guys. (laughs) And thanks be to God that they're not. (laughs) (laughs) He lost the battle, but he won the war at Cambridge, didn't he? Well, he he, at one point he said, nothing can be accomplished until this entire generation of editors and critics dies and rots. And they did. Mm -hmm. And were replaced by another generation Mm -hmm. that was even worse. But Lewis (laughs) continues, and he's still there as an island of sanity and wholesomeness in the midst of all of this toxic theory that has taken over the world. Mm. Uh, It sticks up like Glastonbury Tor out of the surrounding swampland. It's lovely that he's still there. The the Shakespeare class in my graduate program, even in the early 2000s, we we were still, they were still using the OHEL. And so I'm grateful for that. Well, we could go on talking about literature um, for the entire episode, and perhaps we'll have to have you back because this is a topic that I think we could both wax on. (laughs) Yes. But I think to to people's benefit, I think that it's it's crucial to look at Lewis's position in the academy. And part of my work on Till We Have Faces is examining Lewis as a modernist. And and I think that that claim still would bear some merit. Um, And- Fortunately, there's a, a maudlin English professor who is working on Lewis and invested mm-hmm. and, and, and a fan. And so I think that there's some hope um, for things to come. Um, I want to talk about your book, and I want to hear you yeah. talk about your book. Uh, Lewis is not really a systematic theologian, is he? No. 
But uh, every Christian is a theologian in the sense that <laughs> we have an understanding of what the Bible teaches mm -hmm. uh, that we use to live the Christian life and to understand the rest of the world. And so uh, Lewis was not a professional theologian. He's more systematic than you might think. Hmm. But, but he's not an exegetical theologian. I mean, he doesn't, on any given theological question, ask, what does the Bible teach about this? And then go to passages to try to inductively find out. What he does is he mm -hmm. takes the consensus of the Christian tradition, which he knows very well, and then he explains what that is in a way that people can understand and tries to work out certain implications of it in ways that are often quite helpful. So uh, I was able to, my table of contents in Deeper Magic is basically the standard table of contents from a, a systematic theology textbook. And for mm -hmm. each one of those topics, I go through the entire body of Lewis's work, all the expository mm -hmm. prose, all the fiction, all the letters, and uh, say, you know, what did he think about this? How did he present these ideas? And what are the strengths and weaknesses of that presentation as a guide to biblical truth? Has a lot of strengths, mm -hmm. has a few weaknesses, I thought. And the, the thing that makes this book uh, important, I think, is a couple of things. First of all, Lewis, although he wasn't a professional theologian, was certainly an informal teacher of Christian truth and Christian theology. And if you, if you eliminate Billy Graham uh, from the discussion, it's kind of like, you know, there are certain questions where you just take the Bible and Jesus, and they're ineligible to be the answer. Uh, well, in this case, mm -hmm. let's throw Billy Graham out. Who got more <laughs> Christian ideas into more heads in the 20th century than C.S. Lewis? So he's a very important Christian thinker, and for an awful lot of people, he's their introduction to actually thinking about the content of Christian truth, which means he's their introduction to theology. About two or three things about this book that, that set it apart. We have other books about Lewis's theology. For example, Will Vouse's Mere Theology, which is not a bad book. It's a pretty good book, but it's all summary. It's just summary. No analysis, no critique. And I asked Will about that. I said, you know, why didn't you give us a little bit more I mean, summarizing Lewis is kind of pointless. It means I'm translating his brilliant prose into my mediocre prose. <laughs> so why, don't, why not just go read Lewis and skip my book? Why did you do? And he said, the publisher, I wanted to, but the publisher wouldn't let me. I was, I was mm. fortunate enough to find a publisher that did let me. And so <laughs> uh, you, you have books like Mere Theology, which are, are good books, in terms of what they were allowed to be. Mm -hmm. But it's all summary, no analysis, no critique. Or then you have other books that are on a more scholarly level, but they're only dealing with one doctrine or one idea or one group of doctrines. Mm -hmm. So my book covers uh, the entire gamut of systematic theology. It says this is what Lewis uh, taught. This is how Lewis presented it. 
This is where he's coming from so that we understand it. And what are its strengths and weaknesses as a guide to biblical truth? And I conclude it has a lot of strengths and, and a few weaknesses uh, because nobody's perfect. Mm-hmm. On those topics, like I said before, Lewis's basic approach was not exegetical. He doesn't derive doctrines inductively from Scripture. He accepts the, the consensus of the Christian tradition and then just takes that and explains it, elucidates it, and applies it. Well, on those doctrines where there is a unified tradition, that works really well. On theology proper, the Trinity, Christology, on those areas in theology where we haven't quite had um, a perfect consensus and where the different branches of Christendom divulge or diverge, I should say, uh, that's where not everybody's going to be able to to track with Lewis. Mm-hmm. But but I found it uh, amazing how much he actually covers. Uh, you know, there are only a few mm-hmm. topics. For example, uh, in, in my chapter on eschatology, you're not going to get mm-hmm. any guidance at all as to whether you should be pre-mill, post-mill, or a-mill, whether you should be pre-mid mm-hmm. or post-trip. He just doesn't deal with that. It wasn't on his radar. But he gives you a wonderful treatment of the fact that the Christian faith is eschatological. That is, it is aimed at an end point and a purpose and a fulfillment. <laughs> and that this presents us with the necessity of, of dealing with the claims of Christ because there's a parting yep. of the ways that is part of reality. I mean, Lewis presents that extremely well. In the chapter on the Christian life, you know, if you're trying to decide whether to have a basically reformed idea of progressive sanctification or whether the Wesleyan concept of uh, a second blessing is, is the biblical paradigm, not on Lewis's radar. You know, he's not going to help mm-hmm. you with that. So, so there are certain, in, in the chapter on the church, you know, uh, should we be pedo-baptists or credo-baptists? Uh, should we dunk, pour, or sprinkle? Yeah. If you're really writing a systematic theology, you have to deal with all that stuff. And Lewis doesn't. But that's just about the only things in the entire field of systematic theology Lewis doesn't touch on. Well, and I think that that's remarkable. It is. Mm-hmm. I agree, yeah. Especially because this wasn't his training, although he he proclaims again and again loudly, like beginning with problem of pain, you know, any real theologian will find quickly discover what and how little I've read. But I think that he <laughs> protesteth too much. Well, what we actually discover is how much he's read. <laughs> I mean... As much or more than most professional theologians that I know. Mm-hmm. But he, he has the Christian tradition under his mm-hmm. fingertips in a way yep. that very few, I mean, I've known a lot of professional theologians, and since I have been uh, paid for doing theology, I guess I'm one myself, part of the theological industrial complex. <laughs> None of us, I don't know any of us, that have the Christian tradition under our fingertips the way Lewis does. Now, uh, as as an evangelical, 
I'm wanting my theology mm -hmm. to have that element of biblical exegesis in it. Uh, Lewis mm -hmm. needs to be supplemented, but doggone it, the, the actual theologians need to be supplemented by Lewis because he can mm -hmm. teach us how to communicate these things in ways that, that actual human beings can understand. Uh, it keeps us from talking to ourselves. Come back to Beebe's book, his, his, um, his kind of five points were, he calls them high T. Um, Lewis was holistic. He was intentional. He was trans transpositional, mm -hmm. evocative, and audience-centered. Yes. I think that partly he can do the theology that he does, as you've pointed out, is because he read so much and he also remembered so much. I mean, his prodigious memory, of course, comes to the fore. But uh, but the thing, for those of us who can't remember what he reads. Yeah, he'd read it, he'd remembered it, he absorbed it, and he thought about it. Yeah, and I think that it's those other things, those absorbing and those thinking about. I mean, and he calls us to it in, in experiment and criticism. We should attend. We should pay better attention, even if we can't mm -hmm. remember like he does. As theologians, we should read more, and we should attend to it carefully. He is possibly the greatest master in history, once again, if we don't count Jesus, of the apt analogy, because he understood mm -hmm. how metaphors and similes worked. And so, you know, the, the hall and the rooms for the relationship mm -hmm. of the dominations to the church uh, the two books who, that have been sitting on top of each other for et all eternity for right. the eternal right. generation of the sun over and over and yes. over and over again, he's actually thought about how can I use something from the everyday person's normal experience that will accurately without distortion, get these ideas across Jesus, who is the greatest composer of parables who's ever lived even if he wasn't the son of God, you have to give him credit for that. And let us hasten to assert he was. You know. Basically have the same approach to communicating uh, theological mm -hmm. concepts. They're using the same method. Mm -hmm. And uh, there's nobody in there. Uh, I mean, Jesus is obviously number one. Lewis is at the top of the rest of the pack as far as having mastered mm -hmm. that skill is concerned. I don't know anybody else that comes close. Uh, and, mm -hmm. and the thing that's, that's so good about it is he does that when he's writing to children and he does it when he's writing to scholars. The only difference is when he's writing to children, he limits his vocabulary and he makes sure his chapters aren't too long. That's, that's what BB calls audience centered. Yeah. And, yeah. and he knows, you know, he knows to whom he's speaking. I, when I, I took a class on Nicaea and Chalcedon. You got the Narnian trilemma, you know, uh, uh -huh. where Lucy, are the children going to believe Lucy about Narnia? You know? mm -hmm. There are only three possibilities. Either she is <laughs> lying or she's mad or she's telling the truth. You tell me she's not a liar, and it's obvious to everybody she's not mad. So until further evidence turns up, we must assume she's telling the truth. Logic. Why don't they teach logic in those schools? <laughs> so, so you read, you read uh, the line with the wardrobe, and then five, 10, 15 years later, 
when you get to the trilemma in mere Christianity, it's it's familiar ground, and and right, and or you it, or like I did, do it the opposite way. I I saved Narnia way late. You know, it's like I'm I'm devouring the popular apologetics and the space mm-hmm. trilogy and uh, the the literary stuff because I was an English major. And I just kept putting Narnia mm-hmm. off, like the children's books. Why would I want to do that? So then, one one day I said, "Well, it's it's Lewis, so okay, I'll read him." And so I started. This mm-hmm. is my freshman year in college. So I I went to dinner at five, got back to my room about five thirty, started the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and I finished the last battle before my uh, first class the next day without mm-hmm. sleeping a wink that night. I couldn't stop. Oh my gosh. So oh my goodness. So for me it was Narnia enriching the ideas I got from your Christianity. For most people it'll be Narnia preparing them for the adult teaching. Well and one of the things that I've said often um, it, yeah. when I when I teach Narnia is that if Lewis is an evangelist for anything, he's an evangelist for good reading. Mm-hmm. Because he laces these ideas in the children's books and these literary references. It's Gawain, it's Hamlet, it's you know all kinds of things. And yeah. I think that Lewis is trying to get us to to consider more, to read more, uh, to think about these things. Uh, the, I love that you brought up the two books analogy because I had a class on the Holy Trinity with mm. uh, Dr. Kate Sonderager, one of the going systematic theolo- theologians uh, in our day. And when I brought up that analogy, she loved it. Um, mm. And and here's here's somebody who's at the top of the of the field of a, as a professional theologian, acknowledging that Lewis is continuing to do the kinds of things that they do, and in some ways do it do it better, do it in a way that that reaches so many. And that's part of what makes me rejoice at the HBU program and cultural apologetics, mm-hmm. right? That we're starting to integrate and Michael Ward's work on the planets and the Narnias diving deeper into the structure behind till we have faces um, that that we're starting to see if we can integrate Lewis the theologian, Lewis the apologist, Lewis the fantasy writer is all the same Lewis doing the same things and mm-hmm. uh, and I think that uh, that it's a high time to kind of look at look at all of that. It really is. It's all of a piece and every bit of it is relevant to every other part. I think it was Barfield who said that every line wrote in every other line. Oh yeah, what Lewis thought about everything is secretly present in what Lewis said about yeah. anything. And he's absolutely right. Yeah. He was right. It's true. And that must be one of the joys of putting your book together is reading Lewis's thoughts about any given topic will lead you from book to essay to letter to poem all written around the same time. And did, did you find a, a remarkable cohesiveness when you would do that? Oh, yes. Yes. Every single topic that I talk about in that book, I'm, I'm, I've got the popular apologetics, the poetry, something from his letters that sheds mm-hmm. lights on it, uh, something from the fiction, something from literary scholarship will be relevant to Theology, especially, I mean, uh, there's an awful lot from the uh, Oxford History of English Literature volume on the 16th century, because Lewis had read uh, Tyndale and uh, mm-hmm. everybody else and talks about 
their theology, because that's what they were writing about, and puts it in a context where it's under where you can kind of get where they were coming from. Uh, mm-hmm. I, one of the things I was really impressed with, it's clear, obvious, Lewis was not a Calvinist. Um, and yet, he captures the ethos of 16th century British Calvinism mm-hmm. better than any actual Calvinist that I know of, who ought to be <laughs> uh, the ones who understand that stuff. You know, mm-hmm. what was it like to be a Puritan in the 1500s? Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. when it was still possible to be a Puritan and an Anglican at the same time, they hadn't yet gone their separate ways irrevocably. You, know, you, you, can, uh, you can learn an awful lot from Lewis about all these things. Well, and I think it comes back to experimenting criticism again mm-hmm. and a point that I talk about all the time, the association of humility with love, right? Yes. The opposite of, of humility is not um, pride. The opposite of humility is self, right? And the opposite mm-hmm. of self is is love, you know, is going out of ourselves towards another, as Lewis says. And he has this incredible hunger and humility in reading where he gives himself over to even sometimes very dull books mm-hmm. to, to mine it for its depths. And, um, and challenges us as well to receive a work, not well, to be yeah. a critic of it. And it's that reception, I think, that, that in some ways makes him such a good critic. I think that humility and receptiveness tied together is extremely important. One of the most impressive things about him is, like you said, when he did that 16th century volume, he had to read some pretty dull stuff. And mm-hmm. in the actual copies of some of those books that have survived, on the last mm-hmm. page, you know, it says, never again. <laughs> and this is yes. the guy who is the champion of rereading books. Uh, yes, yes. But you never get that when he talks about them. You get a very sympathetic, mm-hmm. he puts them in the best possible light, and he gives the reader the best possible chance that reader can have to be able to appreciate those books if there's anything in them for him to find that's good. Uh, it, that, it, takes a, it takes a real humility to do that. So he, he teaches it and he also models it. And that comes through in his writing and serves us. I don't know about you, but I went tracing down all kinds of things oh, yeah. from the 16th century you know, and ha- half of them remain unread, but he gets us so excited about doing it. Let me ask you one more question. I haven't really, um, I, I haven't really brought this up or even formulated it as a as an idea in a cohesive way. I find that if there's a theme in Lewis, it's everywhere, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and Jerry Root has recently done, of course, his marvelous edition of Dimer. We just interviewed him last month about that. And okay. Jerry's big thing is all reality is iconoclastic, and he sees that everywhere. And you can pick a theme in Lewis, and if it's there and actually present and stated, you can find it fairly well enunciated in almost everything else. Mm-hmm. Right? How many themes do you think Lewis touched on? And this is an impossible question that I'm asking. I'm just kind of marveling at it. But I mean, over a dozen, over 20. These numbers all sound low. You know, there, there's your next book. You can try to count them up. And uh, 
Yeah, put it on top of the stack of uh, of all the ones that I have to write. I'm an ordained minister. I need that kind of help. Um, <laughs> so before we wrap up, I'm we're starting to ask our guests. Um, uh, we have a big debate on the podcast over what uh, Lewis's best book was. And David and Matt are enormous fans of Great Divorce for great reason. But with my own work on Till We Have Faces, I'm staunchly in that camp to the point that um, I think my co-hosts and maybe even some of our readers have a drinking game for every time I bring up that book. Um, what is your favorite of Lewis's books? And what do you think his best book was? Mm, boy, favorite is is a really hard question. My favorite Lewis book is the one I'm reading now. Um, <laughs> here, here. Whichever one I happen to be, yes. to be yes. in. Yes, I, I, I agree wholeheartedly, yeah. Let me make a plug sure. for Miracles. Hmm. It's probably not my favorite. My favorite would be either Perlandra or, or maybe the Narnia books. But when you think about Lewis's popular apologetics, everybody talks about mere Christianity. A lot of people talk about mm-hmm. a problem of pain. But to me, Miracles is the book I keep going back to because you've, you've mm. got deep theology, you've got incisive philosophy, uh, you've got mm-hmm. anthropology, you've got mythology, you've got everything integrated in such a way as to just constantly be scintillating with insight uh, in, a, in a way that I find in no other book, not even any of Lewis's other books, I think, achieve that to the same degree. Uh, hmm. So uh, I, I find miracles to be uh, deserving of, of someplace near the top of those lists. His hmm. best book, uh-huh. he thought it was Paralandra until he wrote Till We Have Faces, and then he thought right. it was Till We Have Faces. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think Till We Have Faces is his most profound book and his most challenging book. I don't know that I agree with him that it was his best book. I'm going to go with Paralandra for that. Okay. Um, because I think I understand a good bit of Paralandra, and uh, I'm still feeling uh, left behind by uh, by uh, Till We Have Faces. Uh, <laughs> I mean, Lewis is, is going to show you something. And, and that book, uh, mm-hmm. it's not like I have no idea what it's talking about. But if, if you define best as able to have the maximum impact on the most readers, uh, I'd go with Paralandra. Although I certainly recognize Till We Have Faces deserves superlatives. It's the most profound, the most challenging. Mm-hmm. And and if, if that's your criterion for best, then it wins. Hmm. And I think that's the kind of thing where you have to de- you have to define what you mean by the by the adjective yes. in order <laughs> to make any sense at all when you pick the book. We uh, we talked a lot. We just finished up Four Loves this season, mm-hmm. and we sp- we spoke a lot about Lewis's phrase in there that 
that, that our challenge is not to praise or dispraise, but to define and describe. And mm-hmm. um, your assessment of that just uh, reinforces the fact that I need to finish writing my book so that I can prove that it's his best. I okay. love that you love Paralandra. <laughs> One of the things I'll suggest is that what he starts in Paralandra with Venus, he mm-hmm. continues in, if Michael Ward is right, and I think that he mostly is, um, he continues in Magician's Nephew, Mm-hmm. which is the last Narnia to be completed. And that's the book on Venus. And then the final novel that he ever writes is about Venus or Aphrodite. It's about Ungot. And so mm-hmm. I think that he completes <laughs> what he's doing in Paralandra until we have faces, but that's a whole nother episode and, and not what we invited you uh, here to talk about, but uh, a, a great and ongoing debate. So you say whatever my current book is, is his best um, <laughs> or your favorite. Yeah. And his best is Paralander. Okay, good. I can easily understand why you would pick uh we have faces. There's definitely a case to be made for that one. Well, I'm just agreeing with the great man himself. <laughs> That's usually a good pun. Although, uh, my favorite, I'll often say, is uh, Collected Letters, Volume Three, uh, just a, a marvelous tome. So it really great is. Stuff there. Uh, although Volume One, I think, is one that everybody needs to read. Oh my gosh! The thing, the thing in Volume One that that really got to me was the change in Lewis's whole character and personality that happens with his conversion. And what's impressive is that that's not what he's talking about. But the mm-hmm. the insufferable, uh, perverted prig mm-hmm. goes away, mm-hmm. and the beginnings of the humble servant uh, of God mm-hmm. with his mind that we have come to know as C.S. Lewis... It's like, uh, because he's talking, and a lot of it is to Arthur Greaves, about other stuff. But you just can watch that attitude. It's like, this is the best case, the best apologetic I have seen, that conversion can actually be real. People actually get changed by coming to Christ. And uh, like I said, the thing that makes that so impressive is that that's not what he's talking about. He's not talking about, I, mm-hmm. I'm giving up that stuff. Mm-hmm. I'm doing this now. It's, it's just the attitude shifts very dramatically as you're yes. working through those letters. Yes. Well, I mean, I think that, that his, his last religion before, Christ, before the, theism um, is solipsism, right? And once he gets over himself, uh, everything can begin. <laughs> Makes a difference. Well, with that, we hear the landlord ringing our bell for last call. And as we do, uh, can you tell our listeners, please, where they can go to find out more about you and where to pick up your book, Deeper Magic, The Theology Behind the Writings of C.S. Lewis? I have a website, which is simply www.donaldtwilliams, one word, donaldtwilliams.com. And the website okay. has all of my books. There are 13 now, by the way. Uh, and you can oh, click fantastic. on them and it will take you straight to Amazon where you can order them. The ones that Great. are still in print. 
Great. And uh, if you don't want to go to the website, probably the easiest way to find them is just go look for me on Amazon. And uh, Donald T. Williams. Well, we'll have links to both your website and uh, and to, to some of your books in our in our show notes for our listeners. So. Excellent. Well, Donald Williams, thank you so much for coming on the show. Oh, thanks for having me. And thank you all for spending an hour with us. We'd like to particularly thank our Patreon supporters, especially our top tier supporters. And those, of course, include Erica, Marvin, Joel, Angela, Deborah number one and Deborah number two, Amanda, Thomas, a Narnia Mouse, Bill and Joanna, Snort and Bud, Shane and John, Kevin, Kay and Brian, Paul and Kimberly, Gillis and Gary, Stephen and Matt, Kelly, Chris, John and James, Kate, Peter, David and Rowdy. Well, if you've enjoyed this episode, we encourage you please to share it with others. And we're in the countdown, uh, the final countdown in our wrap-up to Season 5. And we're looking forward to Season 6, where we dive deeper into Out of the Silent Planet. So, please join us next time, where we'll be going further up and further in. Cheers! Cheers! <laughs>